Well, it is said to be now the most wonderful time of year. And it is. It's a great time of year. School is out. Temperatures are finally down in the United Arab Emirates. Some of you are about to travel. Some of you will stay. All of us have different expectations for what the next few weeks will look like. There is a sense of of hope that Christmas brings to the world. Uh, Some of it is very shallow. It's centered around gifts and presents. Some of it a bit more significant as you get time with your family in various ways, even as the, the year comes to an end. There's always hope that a new year will bring better things. And even as we're in this seemingly wonderful time, we are always struck with the realities of our world. There are wars that senselessly rage on. People are oppressed. Uh, orphans in orphanages, just like the one that Emmanuel and I visited last week, exist in this world. And of course, we know sadness and struggle, trial within our own body. Surely in your own life, you have hopes that have gone unfulfilled, things that you desire even this morning. My guess would be even in this room, some of those hopes are worthy and others are are not. Our world is content with a kind of a vague, sentimental sense of hope. But the scriptures are not. Hope in the scriptures is never an uncertain wish. It is a confident expectation. I wonder what you're hoping for this morning. What are you hoping in this morning? What is that? What reason would you say you have for that hope? That's the questions I want in your mind this morning as we come to the text we're going to look at, Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. We're just going to look at a few verses, verses 2 through 6. Isaiah is a, a book because Isaiah is a prophet uniquely centered on God. As a prophet, Isaiah raises the hopes of the people of God constantly beyond what we see to the God that we do not see. As we look at this text, compare your hopes, the hopes of this world, to the hope given to us by God. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day 
and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Here's what I want you convinced of from God's word this morning. Christian, you have a sure hope. Christian, you have a sure hope. Through judgment, God will create a new people for a new place. You have a sure hope because through judgment, God will create a new people for a new place. We're going to see that from this text. First, we're going to see God's new people. And second, we're going to see God's new place. First, let's see God's new people. There in verses 2 through 4. We are conditioned to want what is new because what is old is is no longer useful. Uh, The once new car, the, the iPhone, the computer, the job, the house, the circumstance is new no longer. And so the old must go. In our world with the right amount of money or maybe a new circumstance, even ingenuity, you can get what is new. When we come to this chapter in Isaiah, we need what is new, not because something is no longer useful, but because actual people are no longer acceptable to God. The very beginning of this majestic book, the prophet Isaiah makes clear that he prophesies to a sinful people, a people laden, as he says in chapter 1, verse 4, with iniquity. Both men and women, to this point, he has made clear, are guilty. Both have abandoned the God who is for the gods who are not, the idols. And Isaiah has declared that a day is set for judgment. So if you just peek back to chapter 3, verse 7, he speaks of that day. In that day, God says, I will not be a healer. And then you look down to verse 18, we read, in that day, the Lord will take away. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, right before this text, we read of seven women taking hold of one man in that day. And they're pleading for men to take away their reproach. Honorable men are gone. So they're looking for at least one man who will lead. And the prophet has been building anticipation for this coming day. And because of the sin of God's people, their anticipation, their expectations, their hopes for this coming day are not joyful. Their hope, actually their expectation is dreadful. In that day, God will judge his sinful people. And then surprisingly in verse 2, we read, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. There has been this rhythm in this book of judgment, judgment, judgment. When suddenly Isaiah declares hope. A coming day when God will not just get glory as he puts his judgment 
on display, but God will get glory as unexpectedly he puts on his lavish salvation for the whole world to see. God is going to do something new, the branch of the Lord. What is this branch? Who is this branch? Uh, This word is a term that's not just used here. It's also used in the prophets Jeremiah and Zechariah. The the term itself refers to a family tree. So the branch of the Lord in Jeremiah points forward to a day when God will raise up for David a righteous branch. The branch is the, the righteous, kingly offspring of David. Zechariah uses the term. The branch is the priestly offspring of Joshua, the high priest. So what these prophets are doing, they're, they're pointing us forward. They're, they're building our expectation for a coming day when the branch, a human being, will come into the world who will be both a king and a priest. But notice what Isaiah says. He is the branch of the Lord. So who is this one? He's from human beings, and he's of the Lord. To come to this point in this book, you feel the devastation of idols. Because of this, on the coming day, it will be marked by beauty being taken away. What people gloried in will prove to be their destruction. You ever felt the emptiness of your idol that you chased, that you loved. So here, God's people would have chased other gods. They would have made statues of them. They would have worshipped them. Elaborate ceremonies. Now, some of you may have done that. Maybe what you're doing now. Or maybe you haven't chased something that's actually evil, like a false god, but You've chased something that's good, but you've made it ultimate. A relationship, a job, a security, money, pleasure. Maybe you've made ministry an idol. You've gloried in it. You've hoped in something that cannot possibly hold the weight of your glory. And then you felt its emptiness, how it doesn't satisfy What have you made ultimate in your heart this morning? As you think about that, hear the prophet Isaiah hold out to you not just what is different, but infinitely better than the idols. The branch of the Lord. Isaiah is making plain that when all that is false, that human hearts wrongly love, beauty And the glory of the branch of the Lord will stand. Who is the branch? The Messiah. The Christ. Presented here very clearly in shadows. But now to us in full light. The branch, the Christ, the only one who can contain your hope. Who alone is worthy of glory. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. What does this mean? Well, I think what should first surprise us that we can easily look over that is this. In the coming judgment, there will actually be survivors. 
People will come through it. In that immediate context, Isaiah was clearly speaking about coming exile. God's people will be conquered by a foreign people. They will be taken from their land. But God is saying judgment will not be my final word. Some will come through it. They will survive the judgment of the Lord. Now, that's not Isaiah's main purpose in pointing that out yet. He says here that the fruit of the land, the fruit of the earth, shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors. Could he be referring to an abundance of crops? He could be. It's possible. I'm convinced in the context of Isaiah, he is referring again to the branch, the Messiah coming from the natural order. From the creation. Just in chapter 11, a few chapters from this one, Isaiah writes of the Messiah and he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that day, when God's judgment is clear, made plain, abounds, when the idols of humanity are exposed, the branch of the Lord alone will be beautiful. And glorious. The branch from the Lord, from the earth. The branch will be the boast of the survivors, not the idols. The branch alone will receive glory. In January of 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from a very routine flight in New York City. What was not routine about this flight was. That day, there was a flock of geese that flew into the two engines on the flight and completely shut them down. If you're familiar with the story, you'll know that the captain of that flight's name was Captain Sullenberger, Captain Sully, as he was called. He was an Air Force pilot. He also was, happened to be a, an expert in safety measures and in gliding an airplane. Uh, When this happened, it was clear that the engines were not coming back on. He had a very clear choice to make. He could either take the plane and go back to the airport he had come from. He could divert to a nearby airport. Or he could actually take the plane and glide it down the Hudson River in the middle of a day in New York City. He very quickly determined that was the only chance everyone on the plane had to survive. Remarkably, this is what he did. And miraculously, seemingly, every single person on the plane survived. This captain was the very last person to get off the plane that day. He went down the aisle as the plane was filling up with freezing cold water to make sure every single person had gotten off and onto one of the rescue boats that had come to rescue those on the plane. The survivors of that plane had absolutely no problem boasting in, glorying in Captain Sully. They knew without one doubt their survival was his work. Now, this is an imperfect analogy because there's no way that we could bridge the gap between a human work of temporary rescue and salvation, as beautiful as it is, and the infinite work of God in Christ to save us from hell. But friends, when you've been rescued, when you know that you have survived because of someone else, you have no problem glorying in the one upon whom your survival depends. 
when God's judgment comes in that day, some will survive. And there will be no confusion who they glory in, who they boast in on that day. The branch. This is your sure hope. The coming Messiah. So where are your hopes this morning? Maybe you need help untangling what your hopes are. Well, ask yourself this. What is it in your life, if the Lord took that away, it would crush you? If the Lord changed what you do tomorrow, there would be nothing wrong with you feeling sadness over that if you love what you do. But would that cause you to lose a sense of who you actually are? Have you taken what is your function and made it your essence? What about the future? Nothing wrong with having plans and hopes for the future. But what place do those have in your life? How much are your hopes rightly in line with the sure hope that the Lord means for you if you're trusting Christ to have at every time and every place in your life? You want to make sure that hopes that you have are good, are lived out in light of your ultimate hope. It's this ultimate hope. It's this sure hope that God promises to give you, and that gives you power to hold on to your lesser hopes lightly. God gives his people sure hope in the hopeless world, the branch of the Lord, of the earth. The second question we need to answer here about God's new people is who are they? Who are the survivors? And they are exactly that, the people God will form and create. Notice that God's new people are a changed people. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. So unlike this old Jerusalem that Isaiah is prophesying to, this new Jerusalem will not be filled with people who are devoted to the idols, but people devoted to God. Uh, This book is so famous for Isaiah's declaration of seeing the Lord of hosts and seeing the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he makes clear, not only will the Lord be the one who is holy, he will have a people who are holy. Why? Because of what they've done? No, because they had been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So God's holy people are a people who are chosen, called, kept, recorded for life. God reveals to Isaiah his purposes to judge and his purposes to save, and not just his purposes. He has persons. He has recorded them for life. Then it would have come through the judgment of exile, ultimately in final judgment. God's chosen a people. He will call a people. He will keep a people. He will accomplish these plans and these purposes he has, both to judge and to save. Now this is so encouraging. God is committed to forming, to having a new people, a holy people. And the holiness 
that we need depends on God's purposes and God's power. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Why are God's new people holy? Why? Because it is the Lord who does the dirty work of cleansing us. That's what the Lord does here, clearly. Notice, it's not the people who do the work. It's God who does it. The Lord washes away the filth of the daughter of Zion. He cleanses the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. The, the language here and the language in the previous chapter is very graphic. But that's because sin and idolatry are graphic. The Bible never sanitizes the world around us. It never sanitizes human beings. God's sinful people can, can never say all of the evil is out there. It comes from within. And sin always is, is shown to, to never bring the satisfaction that it, it promises. Here Isaiah had prophesied and had, had declared that the daughters of Zion had chased after what is beautiful according to the world's wisdom. And it left them humiliated and exposed. That's what sin does. It exposes us. It, it brings shame to us. It, it renders us guilty. But what does God do? He cleanses. He washes filth away through judgment. A spirit of judgment and burning. That's how God brings about renewal. Exile then. A remnant would come through the exile. They would be cleansed. I, I want you to feel some of the hope of this. If you had heard this as one of Isaiah's initial hearers. Just a few verses back in chapter 3, verse 24. Look at this text. Because of the sins there of the women, God declares instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding. Instead of beauty. All of that is what awaited them in exile. They would have been humiliated. They would have been branded. Each of them. Tied up. Let out. By a rope. Head shaved. and Bald. All of it is meant to give a very graphic picture of judgment. But was that God's last word? Absolutely not. Through judgment, cleansing. A new people. Brothers and sisters, this is who your God is. God cleans dirty people. Filthy people. God touches what other human beings will not touch. More than that, he makes it clean. Friends, we hide what is dirty. We don't want others to see it. You stuff the clothes under the bed. Right, kids? When mom and dad are about to come into the room, you, you know this. Instinctively, sometimes parents do that as well. We do this in our houses. We do this in our cars. We do it on our clothes. How much more our souls? How much more our souls? We try to offer up accomplishments or something that we've done. We 
We try to keep people at a distance. We don't want them to know us. It's nothing more than leaves before the God who sees everything. God's new people will be a holy people because God cleanses his people through judgment. God saw then, he sees his people now as we really are. If you were to be honest with yourself right now, what are you hiding from other people that is actually exposed and laid bare before God? That he sees. Are you hiding sin this morning? You might be someone who comes here every week. But you live a very different life that no one knows about. Monday through Saturday. Come into the light. Come into it. God will clean the deepest part of your soul. It's only with this God, only with this God that you do not have to hide. It's only with this God that his complete knowledge of us does not diminish his love for us. Now that's, that's counterintuitive. It's not the way that we think. We're so used to putting our best foot forward in the world. We do this in our relationships. We do it in our jobs. Now, when's the last time you saw someone on social media expose themselves in a really weak way? It always looks good. We want people to see the, the best of us because we know they see that part of us. We'll change our relationship with them. Not with God. J.I. Packer says this so well in his book, Knowing God. Listen to this. There is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the same way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. Nothing can quench his determination to bless me. How great is our God. And you know what God means for you to do as well when you read this text? You are to think forward to the day when you will be in a body that will never commit sin again. All we know right now is sinful bodies, sinful surroundings, sinful minds, emotions. But there's coming a day when sin will no longer affect any of it. Friends, expose yourself in this struggle against sin because that struggle isn't going to last forever. We're in this time of struggle and it is so brief. So whatever it is that sin that so tempts you, that you believe will satisfy you, what is that? It's not worth it. Don't, don't. God's cleansing is coming. It will be full and forever. Don't give up. Trust God in this brief time until the day comes. God cleans filthy sin. He cleans filthy sinners. There's nothing else to clean. God was promising to do it then. And what was he doing? He was preparing the world for the cross. When God would create a new people through judgment on his son. For centuries, the exodus, the promised land, the, the exile, God had accomplished again and again salvation through judgment. So that when God's only son went to the cross, the world would understand this is how God has always worked. So committed 
is God to making a new people that his son has come into the world of sin and sinners and has lived and has died in our place. The scriptures make clear our sin is real and it makes us objectively guilty before God and that our sin deserves his judgment. But God also makes plain he is committed to saving, to cleansing sinners to the uttermost. The cross, what the world considered folly and weakness, God's Son took judgment on Himself so that everyone who would ever repent and believe in God's Son would be cleansed. Come to the Son. Believe on the Son. He was raised. And so now through the Son, the God who is holy makes a people who were unclean holy. Don't try to clean yourself up before God. God loves to clean sinners properly. Fully repent and believe in God's Son, the branch, the one whom you will glory in for all of eternity. He will make you holy and clean. Your sure hope as a Christian is that God has cleansed you through the judgment of Christ on the cross. One day you will see the Messiah in his beauty and his glory. And when God's judgment comes for you, Christian, you can know you will receive the fullness of your salvation. This is a hope that will not disappoint you. When your job changes, when the diagnosis that you never expected comes, when life doesn't turn out as you thought that it would, here is hope. You can stake your life on, steady your life on. God, who is holy, will make his people holy through the Son. And our God never does work that is incomplete. God's new people, but also God's new place. God's new place. Look at verses five and six. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So God's new people and now God's new place. And what are we to know about this new place? First, we're to know it is created by the Lord. That word create in all of the Old Testament is always used with divine action. God will create a new place. Now, why is it important we know that? Because our ultimate hope is what is in what the Lord, by His power, will create. There is never the expectation in Scripture that people, or God's people, will somehow bring in or build the kingdom of God. We witness to the kingdom of God. We testify to it. We do not build it. There's never once in Scripture the expectation that societies will ever flourish like this one. What God teaches His people is that the world that we ultimately long for is one that will be supernaturally brought about by God. So government in our fallen world is necessary but limited. Same is true for the good gifts that the Lord gives us, whether it's education or health care or money or music or the arts. All of them good, 
none of them can lead to this kind of world that's being hinted at in these verses. God promises to create a new place, and that frees us from hoping in this one. It frees us to be content in whatever place the Lord puts us. I I love what we sing in the song, We're Almost Home. Don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. We're almost home, brothers and sisters. So many of you know this, but I wonder if you've slowly lost the amazement at it. You've been dulled to it. The certainty of the hope of this new world. Do you think about this? Weighty, weighty trials and struggles are meant to be viewed in light of the fact that we're almost home. Does your life make sense if, if this world is only all there is or does it, does it make sense if, if there really is a new world that is coming? What about with your money? Do you, do you give away your money? You want to know how you can determine where your hope is? What do you do with your money? Is it all yours? Or maybe a part of it? Or do you see it all as a stewardship before God? Don't let money have spiritual mastery over you. Give it away. We're not home yet, but we almost are. Because God is going to create a new place, it doesn't mean we, it means we don't have to hoard our lives. We don't have to hoard our money. Place, the world that is coming, is a certainty. Isaiah declares the Lord will create. He does not wish to. He will. So what is illogical is those who live only in view of this world. Not those of us who are not. Brothers and sisters, we are almost home. Keep reminding each other of this. Live in view of the world that is coming. Now, if you're trying to go at it alone here, I would plead with you to reach out. Make the move to talk to a pastor or to someone here. Come to a membership class in the new year. I, having been here for some time, know that quite a number of people come to Rack, and it's easy to hide. You're getting away from maybe what was there. Maybe you're starting over here and you can just kind of blend in. Don't be like that. Come into the light. Come into the people of God. Think much about these words. and The place that is coming. The Lord will create. The Lord will create. The Lord will create a place that is coming. And notice what it is he's going to create over the whole side of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. The prophet is using what is indescribable to God's people. He takes what they know to teach them what they don't know. He, he's using Exodus imagery 
What did God do in the Exodus in the wilderness? He was guiding. He was present with his people in the cloud and the flaming fire. But his presence was limited. When God appeared to Moses on the mountain, only Moses goes up before God. The rest of the people stay away. Here is God's presence comprehensively over and in what he creates, over the whole site of Mount Zion, over her assemblies. The old Jerusalem, the unfaithful city, forfeited good gifts because of idolatry. Here is the Lord creating a new city, Mount Zion, his presence there. And God's people will not have to fear God and his glory because God's people will be cleansed and holy. Notice the order. In the very first creation, God prepared the place for the people. In the new creation, God is preparing the people for the place. In Christ, God will make you fit to walk into the new creation. And it's not just created, it's covered over the glory. There will be a canopy. The word there for canopy, canopy was a marriage chamber where a Jewish couple would exchange their wedding vows. Here is God, Isaiah declaring to God's people, not exile. God's going to gather you. That's his final word. He's going to unite you together in the presence of your covenant Lord. God will be gracious to you and unite you with himself. And he will not leave one detail unattended. A booth for shade by day from the heat. A refuge, shelter from the storm and rain. He will protect you from the ordinary things, the heat and the rain and the extraordinary things, the storm. In this new place, God's glory will cover it and God's people will be protected from what we are so vulnerable before now. God is unequivocal. I am preparing for you the place I will create. And notice this from the branch to God's presence in the cloud, to survivors, to the booth, the shelter. God does all of it. The idols are helpless. God does it all. Everything we're looking to, everything we're hoping for, everything that at times we seek idols to provide, God gives as a gift. We always, as Christians, hope in what God gives, not in what we create. God gives as a gift so that he alone will be our boast. So as you think about your life, or you think about ministry, or maybe laboring in your home, do you do that as as if it depends on you? When you find yourself frustrated What is the source of your frustration? It may be you're not seeing things happen that you want to happen. And that can range. It can range in our congregation from seeing people come to faith or maybe seeing something in your life change. The Christian life means you must wait for, not manipulate for, what God alone can give. God will create a new place. There are outcomes and realities that feel so foolish for us to wait for in faith. God is saying it's not foolish to wait. We hope for as Christians what we do not have the power to bring about. And it feels so weak. 
what you do when you pray, when you make the gospel known, when you sit under the word of God, you are doing what is weak in the world's eyes, but you are trusting the Lord to bring about his promises as only he can. He means for you to wait in faith. We do struggle to wait. We think we know better timing than God, better ways than God. But God means for you to see from this text, your waiting will not be loss. When you wait biblically, you're not passive. You're actively obeying God. You're actively trusting God until the day when faith becomes sight. Friends, hear it again. On the authority of the word of God, your faith will become sight. You will see with your eyes what you hope for. We're almost home. Take God at his word. Take God at his word that that day and that place is coming. Don't settle for less than what the world has revealed, the word has revealed. And God promises. I can count, can't count actually, the number of times that I've told someone, I don't want to raise your expectations. Whether that's about a meal or about a place, I can genuinely fear someone will be disappointed when they see what it is I'm talking about. But what's so strange in the scriptures is that the language that the Lord uses to describe the world that is coming, it could not raise our expectations any higher. And yet, it will still exceed them. And ironically, we are the ones who so easily live as if this world is ultimate and that the coming world is nothing more than an afterlife. Friends, we are not waiting for some vague, shadowy afterlife. Life beyond the grave will be life beyond what we can fathom. We're almost home. That wonderful time will be then when God's glory never fades, when his presence never ends. And when we are there and new bodies in that new place, time will be no more. The struggle will be over. This is not a vague hope. It is a certain one, a specific one. God's people will be in God's new place under God's glorious rule. And we will be there because of the finished work, the judgment placed on our Messiah on the cross.